If the American dream is defined as freedom, material success, and comfort, it is often depicted as a house with a white picket fence on your own property in the suburbs with two and a half children. I'm just curious, what do you think the Texan version of that dream would be? Have you ever thought about it? I have. After 13 years of living here and listening to various people's dreams, I'm going to guess that for many of us, it might be defined as life under an open sky and a nice vehicle to get you and your family out to your own private ranch. Sounds like I got it right. For myself, I'd modify that only slightly. For me, it would still be a big home filled with lots of kids, maybe out on some land, but it's also somehow far away from anything poisonous. <laughs> if that's possible. Back in the Old Testament days, what we might call the Israelite dream was depicted as each family having their own vine and fig tree, which was symbolic for them of freedom, peace, and comfort, not unlike a place in the country we might all wish for today, a spacious place to grow your own fruit and rest from your labor. Whether back then or today, I think it's fair to say that not many people have longed for a home in the city. Yet today, as we read scripture, that's exactly where we are. God's people have moved into the city. We hear from the prophet Jeremiah, and as we do, we can almost hear the noises on the street, the loud gossip of the neighbors, the concerns of the family next door that always has their disagreements out on the sidewalk, the people who are selling something, the market, the smells of freshly baked bread and old discarded food, the sight of neighbors who are known by face but not by name who nod politely, the air outside is a little sticky but it's full of life and full of the happy and sad stories of the many people hustling by. That's life in the city. In the early 20th century, there was an activist and a writer named Dorothy Day who moved to New York City. She later converted to Christianity. But as you know, New York City in the early 1900s was a place where poverty and greed, luxury and misery could be seen clearly and in contrast. She wrote in her book, The Long Loneliness, of her experience of walking the streets of the city and experiencing its desperation and somehow in those moments feeling that her fate was intertwined with the fate of the city, that she must know it and serve it for the rest of her life, pursuing hospitality and justice with open eyes, heart, and hands. Today's text puts God's people in a big city, in the capital city of Babylonia, the city of Babylon. Some of you may have been to a capital city before, to a big, important, cultured, aggressive, in-your-face city. Well, this is where God's people have taken up new residence. They are not there of their own choosing, but they are told their fate is now intertwined with the fate of this city. The city, again, was Babylon, it was a place of art, of culture, and of brutal power. The addressees of Jeremiah's message were about 3,000 captive exiles who had been taken to Babylon in 597 BC. They came from the land of Judah. Judah, in the midst of a lot of blase religious practice on the part of God's people, Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, 
had been the place that symbolized faithfulness to God, at least until recently. Jeremiah's message here to God's people was that because they had actually grown unfaithful to God, they were now enduring the discipline of God through this exile. The group of the exiles was made up of royalty, of priests, of prophets, and of skilled artisans. These were the ones chosen for life in the city. People of power, of privilege, of great skill. People who could beautify the already impressive city of Babylon. But now these are also the people who would suffer silently in a city filled with the noise of a proud empire. Because when you're in exile, you're not a slave, but you're also not free. You're stuck, waiting. It's a place where you feel the tension between how things are and how they should be. You can't enjoy home, familiar traditions, traditional foods, even traditional worship. And we know to God's people, life was worship. Life wasn't complete if they weren't worshiping in their temple. And of course, their temple worship was not an option in Babylon. Life didn't feel complete in the city. Without the religious practices that they had been steeped in, they were taught that, and they felt it inside themselves. God's people were hostages in a place with other values than the ones they knew as core to life, and quite literally, other gods. The people of God had become displaced and disoriented. Gone were the country vineyards of Israel and Judah, the dream of the vine and the fig tree to rest under. How could God's people find their place in a city like this? The city streets of Babylon would have reminded God's people of a reality that they would have loved to escape. But instead, they receive a prophetic message that tells them to lean in here into the sharp edge of this exile Jeremiah counteracts the false hope that says, it's going to get easier. You can go back to the way things were. But Jeremiah gives them something better. A vision of beauty, of a countercultural movement of prayerful service and stubborn enemy love. The people needed not denialism, but hope. And by truly turning back to God, Jeremiah said, they would find it. He said, yes, you are in the middle of the mess, And you have been a mess. But you can turn toward God again, and you can do it right here. The call upon the people of God had always been the call for fidelity to God and to the covenant that God had made with their ancestors. Everything revolved around this one basic loyalty. Now even the people of Judah had drifted from the relationship that held primary importance. And so this would have to become their home away from home their place to learn faithfulness and covenant fidelity. They would have to learn to seek God in the city, and it was in the city that they would have to learn to find him. It was time to put down roots in Babylon. Nuns and monks would call that rootedness the spiritual discipline of stability. The Israelites would learn to call it the spiritual discipline of exile. In Jeremiah, we see remi- Jer- sorry. In Jeremiah, we see the prophet reminding the Israelites that God has a plan for you. For the time being, the plan is to remain in exile. Nonetheless, it is a plan. And so let's listen once more to verses 4 through 7. And God tells them exactly what they are to do here. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Verse 4 starts rather strong. This is what the Lord Almighty says. You might expect that kind of a start to be followed with a real tongue lashing. And while Jeremiah certainly has no problem saying God is taking responsibility for this discipline of exile, did you hear what Jeremiah heard from the Lord as the message unfolded? In verse 5, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, and eat. Marry, have sons and daughters. These commands to the exiles, well, these are basic human activities, but they're the best life has to offer. This prophecy isn't starting to sound like bad news at all. It sounds a little bit closer to what we heard from the psalmist about dwelling in the land. In fact, I think this prophecy feels almost celebratory. Can't you just see these happy people celebrating marriages and babies and having potlucks with garden-fresh foods? Okay, let's take it one step further. Correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't this prophecy even sound a little bit like a blessing? Doesn't it sound like a particular blessing? Like the blessing that God gave Eve and Adam to be fruitful, to multiply? The blessing God later gave Noah be fruitful and multiply, to flourish, to Abraham, to Jacob, and now to God's humbled children in Babylon, be fruitful here and do not decrease. God's people would have to find ways to expand their own souls here, to show Babylon a different way to flourish. God's people would have to, as our first reading said, plant themselves in the land, trust God, do good, and trust that God in time will make it all come to rights. So true, Israel had not been faithful. Judah had not been faithful. They are being disciplined. And yet here is God commanding a blessing. God's people are hearing echoes of the covenantal blessing that was initially given to their ancestors. Now it's being commanded for them. Is it possible to survive in exile? Yes. But are we also hearing that it's possible God's people might even grow in exile? Can there somehow be vitality? Could God's people become like the idyllic trees, trees planted by streams of water that are referred to in their psalms? What if it were the case that the Babylonian exile was both a mark of discipline and also an invitation to come back alive to God and to neighbor? Is it possible that the Israelites might not decrease in this exile and might even be better for it afterward? Not only them, but also the unbelievers around them, their fates tied together. If anyone can do it, certainly God can turn an exile into an invitation. 
God can redeem an abundance of shame and bring about abundant life in its place. There is life here, even command for life. Jeremiah says, get married, build a house, make a monument for that hope. Plant a garden. Taste the nourishment that comes from the earth that was created by the God who is the Lord, who is good, and who sustains you even in this moment. There's grace in the taste of that fruit in your hands. There's a sacrament of receiving hope from God in the place that you thought was filled with only darkness. There's an extra something you experience every time you eat fresh food. There's a joyful tear in your eye every time you see a newborn baby or when you see a crazy young couple commit to a lifetime of faithfulness. God's people are to choose defiant acts of hope. If we draw the meaning out even further, might this text also remind us to do things like make a meal for the family with a new arrival, celebrate the life of your friend who just turned 75, go to that birthday party, and don't forget to dance. Again, not specifically in the text, but maybe we can imply it. Because God has not left you alone in the city. Dig in deep. Find your reason for hope and do not dwindle away. Take pride in being able to accomplish a thing done for the sake of hope exactly where you are and not where you wish you were. It is though God is saying through Jeremiah, lean into this exile. In this new hard place, lean into the life that I am giving you even here. I will bless you. And don't forget God also wants to bless the city. God's people are to seek the welfare of the city. The Cambridge Dictionary says welfare refers to physical and mental health and happiness, especially of a person. But our English word welfare in this text is translated from a word that perhaps rings even deeper in our imagination. It's a translation of the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom implies a pervasive, peaceful holiness, wholeness, and sense of goodness. Shalom is not a shallow peace to wish on somebody. Rather, the peace signified by this word is a full body, full mind, full soul experience. Shalom means utter well-being. In the Bible, shalom is the gift and command of God. So instead of just the word welfare, which I admit has been stripped of some power in our language, we can think about the well-being of a person's whole self, of a whole community. Israel, when you are in this dark, dry place, seek the shalom of another, of this proud, cultured city, because God also loves Babylon And for whatever skill and art and cultural exchange you might bring to it, there is no better way to make this city beautiful than to bring it face to face with the shalom of the kingdom of God. In this new landscape, in a life devoid of religious practice as usual, out of ordinary time, Jeremiah shows that even more important than what was once familiar religious practice, now, God's people must take on the spiritual practices of seeking God fully in this new place, of turning their whole selves to him 
loving their enemy neighbors, and choosing to embrace the well-being and peace of God's shalom. The setting of this text is exile, and at first glance may seem to disqualify us today from listening. I'm guessing that most of us are not in exile in Georgetown and that some of us even feel like we're living the life here. We weren't forced here. We came of our own free will. And yet I would still like to suggest that perhaps there are some things we have in common. Maybe you've sensed a few of those things as we've listened to Jeremiah this morning, but I'll note just one or two. First of all, this is the text to an audience of God's people, and they were a people who felt displaced among an increasingly ungodly culture. They were a people who had been planted for a number of reasons in their particular locale. And they were now faced with their choice to live in that place with intention. Whatever brought them to that city, however they were, however they were when they arrived, they could choose to be there now on purpose as living monuments to hope. And I suggest that, like God's people in the city of Babylon, the future that we are walking into, the future that we face, is not just ours. The British writer G.K. Chesterton spoke of a Christian's cosmic patriotism. Chesterton wrote, The world is not a lodging house at Brighton, which we are to leave because it is miserable. It is the fortress of our family. The more miserable it is, the less we should leave it. We need some way in which we can heartily hate and heartily love it. We want a fiercer delight and a fiercer discontent. Can an ordinary man hate it enough to change it, and yet love it enough to think it worth changing? FPC, do we love our place enough to be both fiercely delighted and fiercely discontent, to pray for it, to serve it? Perhaps are you being called today to become rooted and serve faithfully where you live? Perhaps are we in a season of being called to faithfully root ourselves where we are as a church in this city? Things to consider. Jeremiah says to God's people, if you seek the good of your place, your good will follow in short order. Pray for this city, seek its good, and you will find rest for your own tired heart. Even in this hard city, you can be the monuments for hope. And so he tells them, people of God, you're going to go home and plant because you belong to the God that made this place. And you're going to settle in and show unreasonable love for your neighbors and celebrate because you have been forgiven much. You are going to invest in your families because each life is a sign that you are loved and a reminder that you are not snuffed out. Do not decrease In your exile, do not become small. In fact, grow. Grow in love. Grow in courage. Let your soul get much, much larger. Paint Babylon red. And then tell everybody that God told you to do it. And then tell them, by the way, God loves you. 
And that's why we're going to make this place beautiful. Amen.